Turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. We'll be studying verses 27 through 30 this morning. You remember that we are in the process of Solomon's dedication of the temple. He's finished building it. They brought the ark in. Solomon spoke to the people and then he speaks to God and he speaks to the people and he speaks to God. And uh, so here we have Solomon speaking of God's relationship to his people and his relationship to the temple and how that all goes together, what the interplay is between those things. Because when you've got the temple and you've got the ark, you've got the presence of God. God being present among his people. And that's been the focus that Solomon has had so far in this chapter. In verse 12, he quotes and he says, Uh, the Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. Well, the thick cloud had shown up as they brought the ark into the temple. And so it was clear to everybody there that, yes, this is God's dwelling place. He continues into verse 13 and says, I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. Now, it's sort of a strange thing because what does Solomon mean by that? Is he talking about himself? I have built God a lofty dwelling place? Or is he talking about, he's, he's still quoting scripture. Is that scripture talking about something else? Well, the answer is yes. Solomon is, is meaning to refer to the temple, but he is also quoting a scripture that, speaks of much more than that. The dwelling of God was not forever in that temple. That temple was destroyed long before Jesus came. So when we get to verse 27, we come back to that question of what does it mean for it to be God's dwelling place? What is this temple? Would you please stand for the reading of God's word from 1 Kings 8, verses 27 through 30. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this house, night and day, toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, 
your dwelling place. Hear and forgive. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. A place for your dwelling forever, verse 13, right? Then verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? The answer is, of course not. It's impossible. He can't be contained in a temple. One little holy cloud, as awe-inspiring and majestic as it was that it prevented them from fulfilling their temple duties, the priests had to stop with the sacrifices, right? One little cloud isn't going to contain God. Indeed, the whole earth can't contain him. All of earth isn't enough. All of the sky isn't enough. All of heaven. We think of heaven. I say the word heaven and you think heaven, that other place, right, where, where we go after we die. Is that what you think when I say heaven? But the, but the first meaning of heaven is just, you know, the things that are up as opposed to the things that are down, right? The heavens. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Isn't talking about the place you can't see that we'll go to after we die. Not that heaven. The heavens means look up. The sky, the stars, the clouds, the moon, the sun, the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of our great and glorious God. And so when he says here, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. He's saying, look, look to the farthest stars. The entirety of the universe. How many, how many stars, how many solar systems, how many galaxies. Goes on and on and on the universe. We can't measure it. We can't guess at it. Can't contain God. The, the idea of him being contained in a temple. It's a joke. How silly. And yet, it wasn't silly for them to think, God is here, isn't he? God is here in a special way. He had demonstrated it to them. He had shown up just the way that he said he would show up. God has said, I will dwell in the thick cloud. Then the ark comes in and there's the thick cloud. God is immense, immense beyond our imagination. And yet he is present. He's not unreachable. He's not out there so incomprehensible that the idea of him caring about us is absurd. He's not out there so, so far away 
He needed to get out of this universe to some place that could contain him. So here we are, left alone, struggling through this life without any help. No, that's, that also makes no sense. Not when you think the highest heaven can't contain him. What does it mean? It means he is everywhere. The whole earth is full of his glory, as well as heaven and the highest heavens. He fills the whole universe and more. Not, he's too big for the universe, therefore he's not here. He's too big for the universe, therefore he fills it and more. We see this theme many times in the Psalms. I just want to read one verse from Jeremiah that brings this out. The question that he asks, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Is there a place where you can hide? where God won't see you. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Any of you kids want to be astronauts? Anyone? Got a maybe over there? I'm surprised. Nobody wants to be an astronaut. All right. You think if you go up into outer space, you go out of the atmosphere, leave behind all of mankind, you think God's not there? Can you still pray? What if if someday somebody goes to Mars? What a dumb thing to do. Can we pray to God from Mars? We can pray anywhere, can't we? What if if some of you join the Navy and you go into a submarine and you go deep, deep down, down into the depths? Can you hide from God there? Can you hide your heart, your thoughts? your desires and your dreams. Jeremiah says, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? You remember remember Jonah, right? Where was he when he prayed finally? He was in a belly at the bottom of the sea. And who heard him? God heard him. Nobody else could hear him. I don't even know if the fish could hear him. God heard him. So Solomon asks, will God indeed dwell on the earth? And that's a great question. Will he dwell on the earth? 
God dwelling. Now, dwelling, not, you know, grace us sometimes with his presence, but dwell. Dwell means live, stay, be. Will he be on the earth? Living among us? Well, there's nowhere you can go where he's not there. We know that. So that partly answers the question. But there's something more to that question, isn't there? Will God really condescend to earth? Will God really come down to our level? Will God actually hear us? If he's that majestic, if he's that mighty, if he's everywhere, why would he bother about us? Indeed, the psalmist asks that. You know, what is man that you would take notice of him? When I consider the works of your hands, and I look around and I see the majesty of the stars and, and the rolling power of the thunder and the, the breakers in the ocean, the immensity of outer space and the, the nothingness of man. If you've ever read any, uh, any of the old <clears throat> science fiction, I read uh, a story one time that just explores the idea of getting lost in space, ejected out of your spaceship and slowly drifting away and the radio communication slowly begins to fade and <laughs> the immensity and nothingness of space, right? And you think, and the whole, the whole thing that you're left with at the end of that story is, I'm nothing. I am nothing in this universe. What is man that you would consider him? Will God indeed dwell on the earth? When heaven and the highest heavens can't contain him, and I've built this little, beautiful, majestic, big, but little temple on a little mountain, how much less this house which I have built. And then what does he do immediately? He says, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God. Yet listen, yet hear. Let, let you be aware of what I'm saying. Why? Because I am the king. After all, I built you this great temple. No, that's nothing like what Solomon is saying, is it? Is it because he's done such marvelous things for God's name? No. He calls himself God's servant. He calls what he's saying his supplication. Now, do you know, do you know what the word supplication means, kids? Any of you know what supplication means? What is a supplication? 
Any hands? Anybody want to answer that one? It's a hard word. Yeah, Liam. It is asking for something, exactly, yes. That is a supplication, a request. But a, but a supplication uh, has connotations. Oh, maybe I shouldn't use words that big. A, a supplication is something that is weak. A supplication is weak. Because a supplication comes from a supplicant, an asker. Not just an asker, a beggar is probably the best word. Father, hear me begging. I am a beggar. I am your poor, humble supplicant. I come bringing my requests. Who comes bringing requests as a supplicant? It's always somebody who is lower. You come to the king with a supplication. Or you come to a powerful holy man who can beg you a miraculous boon, right? With your supplication. That's what Solomon is. The king of the united Jewish tribes, all of Israel under his authority, more money than you can shake a stick at, and wives to boot, and peace all around, influence across the world. Hear my supplication. I am your servant. Listen to the cry. Who cries? Who cries? Little kids cry, don't they? When what? When do little kids cry? Yeah. When they get hurt. And what do they need when they get hurt? Comfort. That's a good word, yes. I was just going to say a hug. And a kiss. What else do the kids cry? Yeah. Zeal. When they want something. Exactly. <laughs> Zeal read my mind. When we want something, that's when we cry, right? And really, that's why you cry when you get hurt. It's because you want something. You want someone to love you, to comfort you, to give you a hug and a kiss. And Solomon says, Oh, Lord my God, listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today. Solomon is talking about how small he is, isn't he? He's talking about how his temple is nothing. He's talking about how he's nothing. He's just a servant. He's the king. He's just a servant. Now, this temple. Temple comes up again. He says, verse 30, listen 
to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel. So now he's saying, and also everybody else, right? When they pray toward this place, verse 29, he says the same thing. Your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, my name shall be there. To listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Why would they pray toward that place? Kids, you have any idea why they would pray toward Jerusalem, toward the temple? Yeah, wait. Because that's where God was. Exactly. Really simple, isn't it? To us, it might sound kind of strange though, right? I mean, the Muslims pray towards a place. Why would the Jews be doing that? Well, the Muslims did it because the Jews did it. It's actually the way it works. <laughs> so don't get too weirded out by it. But why don't we pray toward Jerusalem? Why don't we turn to face the east? Some Christians may still. Why don't we? We have a new temple, don't we? We have a new temple. The temple that Solomon built is a figure of Christ. It's amazing. It points to him. It points to God dwelling with his people. Now, we've got this whole question. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Jesus came. He was God. He dwelt on the earth. It wasn't just a cloud. It wasn't a mirage. He lived here on the earth. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? The answer is yes. And the temple was meant to point to that. He will dwell on the earth. The temple is a figure of Christ, God with us. And so the people would pray toward the temple. Why? Because he was there. His name was there. He said, this is the place where my name will dwell. It'll be the place where people know about God. It'll be the place where people come to worship God. It'll be the place where their prayers will be heard. It'll be the place where forgiveness the payment, the penalty for sin is paid. The sacrifices, where the ark is, that's a place. And so they prayed towards it because that was God's figurative dwelling place. And literal, in the cloud. And because, literally, he's everywhere. So Jesus came to earth and now is God only there? No, he's, 
Still literally everywhere, isn't he? And yet dwelling on the earth now in a special way. The same special way that the temple pointed to. Not just this idea that, yes, he's in the heavens and the highest heavens, the sea, and nowhere you can go where he won't be there. You can't hide from him. Nowhere where he won't be able to hear you. And yet, he will be present dwelling among his people in a special, particular, physical way. And Jesus came. The people of God have always prayed to God wherever they are. The people of God have always prayed to God because he is present everywhere and he can always hear us. And so Solomon prays and he, he could pray anywhere. But he wants the people to remember God dwells among his people. And so he teaches them to pray toward the temple, toward the ark. And now today we pray to Jesus. We pray in his name, don't we? The true presence of God. Now, this is, this is wonderful because it means that we can still today, though there is no temple, though there is no ark, though there is no cloud, pray toward his temple wherever we are. And he will hear. And he will answer. But I want, to, uh, I want to warn you about something about that temple. We don't have a temple today, physical temple. We have Jesus, as I've already said. But we do have something that is similar, that works in our spiritual life in a similar way to the temple. We have the sacraments. These are physical things, baptism and the Lord's Supper, that point us to spiritual realities. God with us. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. What is it? Physical meal, right? Actual bread, wine there. It's wonderful. What do they tell us? What, do they, what is the purpose? They point to that spiritual reality of what God has done and of God still being among us. Now I want you to realize something about the sacraments. We are tempted to view the sacraments like the Israelites began to view the temple. The Israelites began to think that the temple guaranteed God's blessing on them. After all, God dwelling among his people, the holy cloud coming into the 
temple. The beautiful, beautiful, marvelous, golden room that the beautiful, glorious, golden ark with the mercy seat on it. God's law, the Ten Commandments, written in stone inside it. What could possibly happen to us? We've got the temple. We've got the ark. Today, we don't have to worry. We've got the sacraments. The Jews were rebuked by Stephen for thinking God was with them because they had the temple. He wrote, or he, he spoke, and that we read in Acts 7, towards the end of his sermon, right before he is murdered by the Jews. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me? I mean, you guys have to read the Bible recognizing there's tone of voice included here, right? It's a joke. It's meant to be funny. It's meant to be mocking. The prophet is, is not wondering, what kind of house will you build for me? No. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? And Stephen continues and he says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. So Stephen points out this is an old problem. Them thinking that they're special because they've got the temple. You may think that you're special because you have a church home. You may think you're special because you have been baptized. Because you do take the Lord's Supper. You may think, I don't have anything to worry about as long as I keep doing those things. And that is the exact same error that the Jews fell into with regard to the temple, with regard to circumcision. It wasn't new. They'd been warned about this plenty of times. As a matter of fact, Isaiah warned that their holy meals and gatherings were no longer pleasing to God. Listen to this. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure. Endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. 
So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. All around this country and around the world, there are people who gather in the name of Jesus Christ to worship the Lord, to celebrate the sacraments together, and yet who have not repented of their sin. And anywhere where that happens, and anyone who is doing that, it's not like you've got bad churches where everybody does that, and then good churches where nobody does that, right? Anyone who does that must repent. This week marks so many years of legal murder in our nation through abortion. And what shall we say? The Lord has called us to do. Reprove the ruthless. Seek justice. Defend the orphan. And if we don't, he doesn't care about this meal. As a matter of fact, it becomes a burden to him for us to claim his name and worship him and to not care about the blood of the innocents being shed in our nation. Here we have the Lord's Supper. And we think, well, you know, it's changed. It's the the Old Testament. Now we've got the New Testament, right? Now we've got a God of grace. Back then, they had to obey before he would hear them. They had to cleanse themselves, and then they could pray. But now, it's different. Is it really different? Listen to 1 Corinthians 11. Under the New Covenant, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Pretty similar, isn't it? Those psalm assemblies, they're not mine. When you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And it's not because they had forgot to be doing it. He continues, For in your eating, oh, they are eating. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? 
Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. What did they need to do? They needed to repent, right? Just as the people of the Old Testament were called to repent. See, I think we, we like to... We like to think, no matter how much we here are anti-dispensational, no matter how much we think we understand the Bible's teaching about how God is the same in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, not some angry God and loving God contrast going on. And, and hey, you know, all that's true, right? but I think we still fall into that mistake over and over again of thinking, you know, we don't have to worry anymore about those things that they did. And why? Well, because it's a new covenant. But we really, we really think it's because God has changed. But I ask you, Let's put the worst possible construction out there. You've got a crazy liberal church. Okay, and um, you've got a lesbian minister, very common today, uh, and pro-abortion. Okay, terrible church. Nobody should be there, but people are there, right? And they celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I say to you, are they celebrating the Lord's Supper? They're not celebrating the Lord's Supper. But they pray. The symbolism is still there. The meal the meal's still supposed to mean the same thing, right? But Paul says, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. What do they need to do? They need to cleanse themselves, right? They need to repent, right? Oh, I put the worst possible construction on it so you can at least believe me when I say it's still a danger to us today. so that we at least see that there is still something of a similarity, so that we at least see that we also need to hear what they were told in the Old Testament. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Until what? Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. 
This does not make us into works righteousness people. It makes us into people who fear God and who repent before we come to this meal that declares our need of washing. Unless we recognize that it's possible for people who claim the name of Jesus to not be of Jesus, there's no hope for us to understand this meal. There's no hope for us to understand the temple. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That's what they said. They thought it was majestic. They thought it was glorious. They thought that it meant God was going to be among them forever. The Lord's Supper. As long as we celebrate it, and we're supposed to celebrate it forever, as long as we celebrate it, he will be among us. The only question becomes, are we actually celebrating it? So that's the call to us in preparation for this meal. It's a sweet and wonderful thing, just like the temple was glorious. We have received Jesus Christ in the flesh. And he was broken his body was broken, his blood was shed, so that we could be united with God. Now, are you going to come to God in repentance, claiming this in truth, or are you going to come to it holding on to your sins still and refusing to repent? The first is to celebrate this meal. The second is to eat and drink God's judgment on us. Because just as the Israelites became more guilty because they had the temple of the Lord, because they ought to know better, because they had his word, so we who have this meal, we become more guilty when we eat and drink without repentance. For it is a declaration of our need for washing. It is a declaration of our sins and of our repentance and trust in Jesus Christ.